So let's go to John chapter 8, please. John chapter 8. This is the second message in a, a short series that has been put together just for this particular time. Uh, and Jesus in Mark chapter 8 said to the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And then he said to them, Who do you say that I am? And the title that I've given to this series is, Who Do I Say That I Am? In other words, what did Jesus say about himself? Uh, Not what other people say about him, not what the church says about him, or what I say about him, but what does Jesus actually say about himself? As I mentioned earlier, I think the most important thing we can do right now in this season is really focus our gaze on Jesus both from the point of view of God's people being encouraged by drawing closer to him and knowing more of his character, and also for the point of view of anyone else who would, who would tune in or who would listen, that they get an accurate, hopefully, please God, an accurate description of who Jesus actually is in his own words. Last week, we, we looked at the fact that Jesus said he was the bread of life. And as he made that statement himself, he used the phrase, I am. And going back to the book of Exodus in chapter 3, that is how God revealed himself to the people, to Moses, in order to have a name to bring to the people. The name that he gave to Moses was the name Yahweh, which means I am. And then as you go through the journey of God with his people, you will find him using that term frequently and adding on a little bit more about his character. So he will say Yahweh Jireh, Jehovah Jireh, which means I am your provider. Or he'll say Yahweh Sidkenu, which means I am your righteousness. Or Yahweh Shalom, I am your peace. God would reveal himself in the Old Testament with this phrase, this I am, and then he would put something after it to reveal more of his character to his people. And Jesus does that in John. He does exactly the same thing over and over again. He says, I am, and then he puts something after it. Last week, it was the bread of life. I am the bread of life. So in this series, we're looking at what Jesus says about himself We're not sticking exclusively necessarily to those I am sayings in John. We might not do all of them. We might go out somewhere else. But this is the the heart of what I want to do. I want to hold him up for you to get a good close look at who he is. Last week, I am the bread of life was declared against the backdrop of what's called the Feast of Passover. When God's people remembered the passing through the Red Sea, the passing over of the angel of death over the homes that had been covered by the blood of the lamb, the people going into the wilderness and manna being provided. And against that that feast, Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. I'm not going to give you bread from heaven. I am the bread from heaven that has come down for you. Um, and this, this morning, again, we're against the background of another feast. Now, John loves to do this. And if you want to uh, have a, a, just a, a fuller understanding or more fun as you're reading John, look for the feasts of Israel that are in the background, because John loves to set Jesus against the background of a feast. He does it with Passover. Uh, he does it with a feast called Dedication at the end of chapter 10. 
Uh, in chapter 11, although John doesn't say it, there's a good chance that the Feast of Purim might be in the background. And John 7, 8, 9 and 10, which we're going to pick out one verse from today, is against the background of a feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, this feast was awesome. This was the most joyful feast in the Jewish calendar. It was, if you think about what Christmas means to, to us in, in terms of feasting and celebration and joy and all the traditions that we have, um, that, that was sort of what Tabernacles was like for them. They loved this feast. It lasted for seven days and everybody pr- practically went up to the city to celebrate this feast. Uh, you read Jewish historians at the time and they will write about how the surrounding towns and villages might only have had about 10 people left in them because everyone else packed their bags, went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted for seven days and it was at harvest time. It was in the autumn. It was at the time of the autumn equinox, whenever day, daylight and night were of equal length, but we were moving towards a time of year when darkness would increase. It's important. Um, and because it was harvest time, there were stacks of fresh food. I mean, just piles of it. It was, a, it was class. Um, you know the way at, at a certain time of year, a particular fruit or vegetable will be in season and you know when you buy it at the shop that it's fresh and it's local and it tastes good. Um, whereas at other times of year, you know that it's been in storage, you can still buy it, it still looks like broccoli, um, but whenever you eat it, you're like, this does not taste like anything because it's been lying around somewhere or has been, I don't know, brought in from the other side of the world. At this time in the Jewish year, there was just bucket loads of fresh veg. Heaven. And for those of you that don't like fresh veg, it was also the biggest barbecue you could possibly imagine because there were more sacrifices offered at tabernacles than at any other time. And in case you don't realize it, when you read the Old Testament about the sacrificial system, the people bringing a sacrifice actually got to eat most of the sacrifice themselves. So they would eat in the presence of God. The family would bring a sacrifice, make a sacrifice, and then they would eat joyfully in the presence of God who has accepted their sacrifice. There would have been about 7,000 priests on duty during tabernacles. That was pretty much all of them. And they were all man in the barbecue. All right, It was just heaven. Lots of barbecues, lots of fresh veg. Couldn't get any better than that. And everybody lived in tents. That's why it was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle uh, is a tent. And at this time of year, at harvest time, the farmers would have put little tents in their fields and would have slept in the fields at night in order to protect their crop from thieves. And at Tabernacles, everybody brought their tent and lived in their tent for the whole week. It was a bit like Glastonbury without the mud. Um, the, the people would live in these tents, they would eat in these tents, they would fellowship and worship in these tents, they would just spend the whole time in the tents. And they're not only using those tents because it's harvest time, they are looking back to the time that they wandered in the wilderness. 
And yes, yet again, Exodus is in the background today. And Genesis will be in the background as well. We've got to understand those stories if we're going to understand Jesus. So they're all living in tents. They're giving thanks for the harvest. They're eating themselves silly. And they are remembering when God's presence was manifested among them also in a tent, in a tabernacle. All right, so this, this is also part of their thinking at that time. There were a couple of different ceremonies that happened every year during the Feast of Tabernacles. One of them was called the water ceremony. Now, if you read John chapter 7, you will find Jesus saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said all of that on the day that the water ceremony was coming to a climax. That's all in the background in John chapter 7. Don't have time to describe that water ceremony now, but that's in the background of John 7. There was also what's called the light ceremony, which was referred to sometimes as the illumination of the temple. Now, what they did in the light ceremony was they had these four massive candlesticks. Now, when I say massive, I do mean massive. They were 75 feet tall. Uh, They were in the area of the temple known as the Court of the Women. And that was the part of the temple which was the limit as to how far the women could go. So it was part of the temple where everybody could access, men, women, children, the whole works. Everybody could be in this place. Um, And at the top of each one of these 75-foot candlesticks, there were four big bowls. The bowls were full of oil, and then there was a wick placed in each bowl. Now, the wick is a wee bit weird, because it's not like a candle wick that you might have at home. The thing that was used for the wick, and I'm not kidding, and you're allowed to laugh at this, kids. The thing that was used for the wick of the candle was the undergarments of the priests that they had worn during the year. Those were set into the bowl of oil, huge bowl. These undergarments, just let your imagination run wild. These undergarments would float around in the oil and they would light those and those would act as the wick and burn the oil. So you have four candlesticks, 75 feet high. You have four bowls of oils on each one, that's 16, and you have an immense amount of light. It looked incredible. You've got to bear in mind that there was no other light source at night. Okay, we can't really imagine this with our street lights and all different things that we've got on, our security lights around our houses and all that. There was no other light. And at this time of the night, at this time of the year, it was pitch black in Jerusalem. But during this ceremony, this Feast of Tabernacles, I think every night those lamps were lit or else they burned throughout the whole week. But they just bathed the city in light. Apparently, if you were in the hills around Jerusalem and you were looking at Jerusalem from a distance, it actually looked as if the temple was on fire because the light just dropped from these huge candelabra. The yellow sandstone that lots of the buildings in Jerusalem are made of would just reflect the light and the whole city would be ablaze with light. It was a wonderful sight, the sort of thing that you'd never forget. Like when you're a kid and you go to a fireworks display and you just see the whole sky lighting up on a dark night. 
it was it was that sort of excitement for the people to actually witness this and see the beauty of it all. So that's the background. And and at this aspect of the feast, the people in Jewish feasts always did two things. They always looked back and remembered something from the past about God what God had done. Last week, Feast of Passover, they looked back and they remembered the parting of the Red Sea. They remembered the, the bread in the wilderness, all those things. And they also looked forward to something that God would provide in the future. So last week, we talked about how they looked for a time when Messiah would come and again provide bread from heaven. At this feast, one of the things they're looking back on from the Exodus is recorded in lots of places in the Old Testament. I'll just read from Psalm 78, which is a bit of a summary of of the Exodus. Uh, Psalm 78, verses 13 and 14. It says, He divided the sea and led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. That light from the fire is what the people were remembering in the light ceremony at the Feast of Tabernacles. Because what God did for his people was, during the day they were led by a pillar of cloud, and during the night that became a pillar of fire. It led them in the wilderness. It showed them where to go. It not only showed them where to go, but it also protected them. You read in Exodus 14 of how... Whenever the people were being pursued by Pharaoh's army, this pillar of fire went in round in between God's people and Pharaoh's army and protected God's people. It caused darkness. The cloud caused darkness to fall on Pharaoh's army, but the fire brought light to the people of God and it acted as a wall of protection. One of the things that we pray here a lot and that I would encourage you to make... uh, Part of your prayer vocabulary is, is Zechariah 2.5, to pray that God would be a wall of fire around his people, protecting them. So at the, the Feast of Tabernacles, at the light ceremony, they're looking back to the pillar of fire. Now, in the wilderness, it's dark. It's darker than dark. There is just nothing, nothing to provide light in the wilderness at night. And if you did not follow the pillar of fire, you were left on your own in the dark which is not a nice prospect. So they remembered the pillar of fire. As these great candles were lit and as Jerusalem was lit up completely by them, they were looking back and thanking God for his guidance in the past and his protection and the light that he provided. And they're also then looking to the future. They would have sang songs like Psalm 27, verse 1, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear?' They sang about this light character of God and they would look to the future when God promised once again to be light for his people. You will get that in Isaiah, all over the place in Isaiah, but Isaiah chapter 60 verse 1 says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth and thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord rises upon you and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light. So they're looking forward to a time in the future when God will once again provide light for them. 
Isaiah 60, again, verse 19, says, The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. So this is all going on. This is setting the scene here. Big candles burning, looking back to the pillar of fire, guidance and protection, looking forward to God himself coming and being their light once again in the future. In that context, Jesus is going to make another of his I am declarations. Another one of these moments where like his father, like God in the Old Testament says, Yahweh, Jireh, I am your provider. Jesus is going to do something similar. And what he says is, it's on the either the last day of the feast or the day immediately after. We can't be certain. But he is standing in that court of the women. We know that. It tells us that, I think, in, in John 8, verse, uh, verse 20. Um, and also we, we know from the woman caught in adultery in John 8 that, that that's in the background as well. But Jesus is in this court. The, the, the light has probably burnt out from their candles during their celebration. And he declares to them and says in verse 12, I am, there's your phrase, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He declares himself to be the light. I am not saying that he's the light. I didn't read it in a book somewhere other than this book that he's the light. He himself is saying about himself, you want to know who Jesus is? You want to know who I am, he says? You want to know who I am, who I say that I am? I am the light of the world. Not just the light of the temple, not just the light of Jerusalem. I am the light of the whole world. And he who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean to not walk in darkness? For those Israelites in the wilderness, the fearful thing was being left in the dark when the pillar of fire moved and someone decided, I'm not going to move with it. I'm not going to follow the light. If you chose to not follow the light, you were in the dark, pitch dark, not able to see your next step on your own, confused, fearful groping for something solid to lean on, tripping over unseen obstacles. This is the description of life for an awful lot of people. They may not be in physical darkness, but as they move through life, they are very much moving in the dark. They have not come to the light. Darkness is a theme throughout John's gospel. Read it and look for it. In in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes at night under the cover of darkness. In John 13, whenever Judas betrays Jesus and he goes out and leaves the Last Supper, John records, Judas went out and it was night, dark. We know that Jesus' trial took place at night under darkness as well. John talks a lot about light and light has to do with wisdom. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, it's to do with wisdom, it's to do with truth, it's to do with life. Um, The psalmist in Psalm 119 says that uh, 
God's word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Now, John connects the word with Jesus. The word is a lamp for my feet in the Psalms and a light for my path. Now, there's only one thing the psalmist could have been referring to there when he talked about a light for my path. He wasn't talking about a torch. He was talking about the pillar of fire, a light blazing a pathway ahead of us. What does it mean that we will not walk in darkness? I just want to give you a few thoughts. We will not be in the dark about who God is. All right? If we come to Jesus, he is the light of the world, we will no longer be in the dark about who God is. A mistake that a lot of us make is we project onto God what we think he is like or what we think he should be like. God made us in his image, but we sometimes try to flip that around and we try to make God in our image. Yeah, we try to project all the things that, that we want, that we desire onto God. All the things that are important to us, we then assume that they will be important to God. And we try to make God in our image instead of living as people made in his image. So, you know, we will project onto God the fact that he should, you know, give us a promotion and he should give us a new car and a bigger house and, and better health and, and whatever. You know, all of these things we say, well, if, if you know, this is what God should be like because these are the things that I want. And we, we force that image of, of our desires onto God. But that's totally backwards. God made us in his image, in his image. And we cannot project onto him what we think he should be like. Jesus is the light of the world who shows us what God is like. Now, I wheel out this quote every year at Christmas, and here's another opportunity just to wheel it out again in the middle of the year. But Rick Watts says, Christmas Eve is a wonderful time because we no longer have to guess what God is like. Jesus came to show us the Father. He says further on in John chapter 8 and verse 19, if you knew me, you would know my Father also. Knowing him is to know the Father. In John 14, he says to Philip, anyone that has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Stop thinking yourself about what God might be like or what you'd like him to be like. Jesus is the light of the world who illuminates the character of God to us. It does not matter what you think God is like. What matters is who has Jesus presented God to be like? You want to know what, who God is? You want to make an informed decision in life as to whether or not you want to follow Jesus, whether you want to be a child of God? You, you want an informed decision? Stop projecting things onto God. Unfortunately, you can't always look at the church for an accurate depiction of what God is like. But in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can see what God is like and who God is like by looking at Jesus. And you can make an informed decision as to whether or not you want to follow. How you would not want to follow someone who turns water into wine at a wedding someone who protects a woman who's about to be stoned by a bunch of religious guys, someone who raises the dead, who opens blind eyes, who provides food for the multitude, who conquers death, uh, who rises again. I, I, you know, 
how you would not want to follow him or what you can find that's better than that is beyond my understanding, but at least make an informed decision. At least come to the light. One time in your life, come to the light and say, right, God, I'm going to read these gospels and I want you to show me who you are if you're really there and see what Jesus does by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're no longer in the dark about what God is like or who God is. Also, we are no longer in the dark about who we are. Because Jesus perfectly shows us who God is, and he perfectly shows us what it means to be a human being. He was incarnate. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. He is the one person in history who you can look at and say he lived without his life being tainted by sin without his life being tainted by selfishness. He is, according to Daryl Johnson, the one untarnished, untwisted, authentically whole human being who has ever lived. And when we look at him, we get to see what humanity is like or should be like. And we learn who we are. It is so important, folks, that you know who you are according to Jesus that you allow the light of the world to shine into the darkness and illuminate truth in your heart about who you are. You who follow him, he says in John 1 verses 12 and 13, that those who came to him and believed in him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Now that is who you are as a Christian. You are a child of God. You need to just dwell on that. That is the safest and the most secure identity anyone can have. You are a child of God. You are made in the image of God. And you are of immense value. Whether you are a Christian or not, you are made in the image of God and you are in immense value. If all the material wealth on earth could be piled up on one side, Everything, every dime, dollar, penny, pound, every, every bit of material wealth was in a pile on one side. And you, just you, just one single human being was on the other side. And God was asked, which has more value? He wouldn't even think for a nanosecond. He would say, that one person made in my image is of more value than all the wealth in the world. That is who you are. Jesus, the light of the world, brings value to people. He brings value to people who are otherwise looked down on in society. He goes through the Gospels with the poor, the sinner, the outcast, the prostitute, the tax collector that everybody hated, the the people who were sick, the people who were lepers and rejected by society. Jesus brings value to humanity. But when we come to the light, we're no longer in the darkness about who we are as human beings made in the image of God. We are loved by the creator of the universe. We are loved. The sky has been beautiful for days and clear and you can see the stars at night and the beauty of the sunrise and the sunset and the colors The one that made that, the one that sustains that, loves you. (laughs) And Jesus, the light of the world, came to show us 
that we are loved by the Father. As the song says, I am loved by you, that's who I am. That's who I am. We're not in the dark about who God is. We're not in the dark about who we are. And we're not in the dark about what's in our hearts. Jesus, the light of the world, shines into our hearts. I don't know about your house, but in my house, the dark areas where you don't go very often, like the attic, the sort of storage areas, the garage attic, those areas where it's dark, and you don't look at them very often, get pretty messy. And uh, you go in and you go to look for something and you put the light on and the light shines on the mess and you think, oh, I'm gonna, someday I'm going to have to actually do something about this. Light has that ability to expose things that need to be dealt with and things that need to be even thrown out and got rid of. Things that are accumulating in dark corners. That's what Jesus comes to do. The light of the world comes to expose the condition of our hearts. According to John 3, that's why some people won't come to him. They love darkness more than light. They don't want the darkness to be illuminated. They don't want Jesus to shine his light into their hearts. And also it's, you know, according to Paul, the, the enemy, the Satan, blinds people. In in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, in Genesis 1, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's why we need to proclaim who Jesus is. Because every time we do that, we are lighting those candlesticks. We are holding up him to, to, to brighten and to lighten up the areas of lives that, that Satan wants to keep dark. We are bringing light to people who are living in darkness because Satan has blinded their eyes so that they will not see the light of the gospel of, of, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we keep on declaring who Jesus is. We keep on shining the light. But even as we walk with him, even as, as we walk with him as Christians, we have to keep coming to the light again and again and again that our hearts would be exposed. Jesus says in John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He tells the religious people in John 8, he says, you guys are slaves to sin. Whereas he wants to set people free and make them sons and daughters, make them children. A son and a daughter is free. A slave is not free. So we're not in the dark about who God is. We're not in the dark about who we are. And we're not in the dark about what's in our hearts. Another lovely verse that's for some reason we only read around mid-December is from Isaiah chapter 9. The people walking in darkness, even sitting in darkness, I think one translation maybe has, have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. So Jesus is the light of the world. And he also says in verse 12, he who follows me, We've looked at the fact that we no longer walk in darkness, but just before that, Jesus has said, he who follows me will never walk in darkness. 
Again, the picture is following that pillar of fire. It's not sitting beside the fire getting warmed. It's following the pillar of fire as it moves. And another thing that we don't need to be in the dark about is about how to live, how to actually follow Jesus, he who follows me. The picture is of a ongoing following. I do believe the gospel in some places has been reduced terribly to this notion that at one stage in the past, I give my life to Jesus and therefore I'm okay. That is not the gospel. The gospel is a call to die to self and to follow him. It's a call to be filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to live a life that is pleasing to God. But please get this. It's not a one-off. It is an ongoing following. Anyone in the wilderness who said, well, I followed the pillar of fire you know, two years ago, but, you know, I've just decided to, to stay where I am for now. They're dead, okay, because the pillar of fire has moved, and they're in the darkness, and they're going to die. It is an ongoing following of the light. He who follows me. And John, in one of his letters, talks about the Christian life, and he says about walking in the light. Lovely description of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple. We are walking. We are moving in the light that he provides. Jesus shows us how to live. And he sums it up by saying that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors. Those two th- that's how we live. We're no longer in the dark about how to live. What do we do with our lives? We walk closely with God. We love him with everything within us, and we love others. And we see Jesus doing that. He's the light of the world in the gospel. He has lit up what it means to live, how to live, how to, how to walk in close communion with God and how to love others. And he calls us to do the same thing. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, the thing about Jesus is he doesn't, he doesn't come and analyze the darkness. He just drives it away. Whenever you shine light in the darkness, that, that's not to, to allow you to see the darkness better. You know, Jesus doesn't analyze the chaos and the darkness of our lives. He brings light and he then dispels the darkness. Not only that he brings light, he is light. Just like last week, he is the bread. He doesn't just provide bread, he is the bread. This week, he doesn't just provide light or shine light, he himself is is light. He's the light of the world. And we see in John's gospel on either side of this chapter what it looks like to come to the light. A woman caught in adultery and about to be stoned by religious people comes to the light and Jesus protects her and Jesus restores her and tells her she is not condemned and tells her to go and to to leave her life of sin. After John 8, Jesus encounters a blind man, a man who lives in darkness all the time. And Jesus heals this blind man and brings light to him. And again, the religious people go mad. They throw the guy out. These people come to the light and the light transforms them. But in the middle in John 8, you've got these ongoing debates between Jesus and the religious guys who just want to just want to criticize and just want to pick things apart and just want to, to, to sort of look for faults and look for flaws, argue and debate. And Jesus didn't come to argue and debate and he didn't come to analyze the darkness. He came to drive it away. 
He didn't come to satisfy theological curiosities. He came to bring life and to bring light. God's people are called to be light, and I'm nearly finished. Um, in Isaiah 42, 49, God, this calling upon the people, upon Jerusalem to be a light. When Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world, he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hid. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about these lights burning during tabernacles. He says, the whole point is you're on a hill and you've got this light and the whole world is meant to come to your light. But Jerusalem blew it and Israel blew it and they did not authentically show the world the light of God. And Jesus says, if, you, if you've got John 8 still open and you look at the start of John 9 where he heals the blind man, he says in, in verse 4, night is coming. And this is still at Tabernacles. And the way we would put this uh, in maybe in October time would say, well, here the evenings are drawing in. We'll talk about the, 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 the daylight fading earlier in the evening. Jesus says, night is coming. In the Feast of Tabernacles, in autumn, the equinox, the, the, the turning of the seasons and the darkness coming in, Jesus says, night is coming. And it's much more than just a drop in the evenings. When he says night is coming, he's saying to them, he's talking about the darkness of Good Friday. He's talking about a new chaos that would come. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, creation briefly dropped back into chaos and darkness. We know from the other gospels that darkness covered the land. We know that there were earthquakes, the rocks split. What you see happening there as Jesus hangs on the cross is a return to chaos, a return to darkness. Jesus, when he was crucified on a hilltop in Jerusalem, did what Jerusalem should have done and what God's people should have done. As, as he was crucified on that hilltop, a fire was lit that has never gone out. A beacon on a hill, a light for the whole world to come. The light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. And after that chaos of Good Friday and Holy Saturday as it's known, after that darkness and chaos, the tomb opens. And in the darkness on Easter morning in John 20, early in the morning while it was still dark, Mary went to the tomb. <clears throat> but in the meantime, the sun had risen and the dawn of new creation had taken place. Jesus had come forth <clears throat> as light into the chaos and into the darkness that surrounded him on the cross, bringing life and bringing light to others. He is the light of the world. He did not fail to show us the character of God. Just as God spoke in Genesis 1 into the creation, into chaos and in the darkness, and he said, let there be light. His word came and light came. And Jesus does the same thing on the cross. There is chaos and darkness and the light then shines. <clears throat> the word that, that, that became flesh in John chapter 1 and tabernacled among us, the, the light shines in the darkness. But the darkness has not overcome it. And the darkness cannot overcome it. Jesus shines in the darkness and cannot be overcome. Who is Jesus? Who does he say that he is? 
He says that he is the light of the world. And he says that anyone who follows him, anyone who watches that pillar of fire move and moves with it, walks in the light, doesn't just sit in it. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. You will no longer be in the dark about who God is, about who we are, about the problems and the, the issues of the human heart, or about how to live as a Christian walking in the light. You will no longer be in the dark, but you will have the light of life. And you can choose to follow that light, or you can choose to stay in your tent in the wilderness and hope for the best in the darkness. But the outcome of that is not pretty at all. Jesus is incredible. He is the light of the world. He is the most perfect. According to Hebrews 1, he is the exact representation of God. And I would urge you, if you've never done it before, read the Gospels and look long and hard at Jesus and make an informed decision as to whether or not you want to follow him. And for those of him, or for those of you who have followed him for years, stay in the Gospels. Don't graduate out of the Gospels. Read the whole Bible. I would encourage you to try to read the whole Bible once a year, but I would encourage you to read something from the Gospels every single day. Be constantly coming to Jesus constantly astonished and amazed by him as he reveals the Father to us. Thanks for listening. Uh, Let me